You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in the field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. In this episode, Dr. Daniel Chen joins us again for Science Commune, a series that goes beyond the research to explore what inspires and motivates scientists in their careers. Dan chats with an early leader in microbiology whose stories may surprise our younger listeners. Please enjoy his conversation with Dr. Rick Derrick. Today, advances in biology and biotechnology hum along to the sounds of robots that can perform experiments, cloud-based big data analyses, and DNA sequencing that relies on things like email. But with so many parts of life that have taken a dramatic shift over time, we often forget about what life was like before that shift. Like, I, I can't remember how I used to find my kids if they would wander off on vacation before we had smartphones. Now, today, I just call them or text them. Um, so how did we get here with biology? How did we learn about how cells were programmed before we could do high-throughput gene expression analyses and genomic sequencing? And what can we learn about how to problem solve from those that helped us get to where we are today? This is Science Commune, and I'm Daniel Chen. Today, I'm joined here by... Uh, Rick Derink and... Um... I'm at UCSF as a professor, and I've been here in the U.S. for about 40 years. Rick, it's so good to have you here today. We've had a chance to um, talk about so many things from science to great wine. Um, I'm really looking forward to this chance to get to talk. Well, let's see how it goes. (laughs) So, Rick, you've been a part of so much of the history of modern-day molecular biology and biotechnology. But before all of that, how, how did you first become interested in science? Well, my interest in science goes a long, long way uh, until the age of about six, when I was intrigued by my dad, who was breeding birds for color using Mendelian genetics. And I was helping him across the street on a piece of land, growing plants and vegetables and fruits. And so gradually, I became interested in biology, even though at one point my teacher in high school came home trying to discourage uh, or trying to convince my parents to discourage me from pursuing biology as a profession. So... Well, that feels like a long way away from where we are today in biology and biotechnology. Um, I'm assuming that those early days of molecular biology were probably very different than what we experience today in the field. What what, what was it like? Well, to be frank, I mean, the first interest I had in biology was this very small booklet that I read, I think, when I was about 14 years old, and the word molecular biology had just been invented. Um, I can go on for about 15 minutes or longer on how it was, but the bottom line is that cell biology was primitive. It was primarily bacterial biology, bacteriophages, and enzymes were being purified. We were exchanging enzymes 
Like we give, for instance, Equar 1 to Clino, who had a purified the DNA polymerase. So there's a lot of connections and people you know because we had to purify our own, our own enzymes. Uh, synthetic DNA didn't exist in the early days. So, and then so the email and computer programs for homology and secondary structure didn't exist. So, Rick, are there stories that you clearly remember from this period of time? Yeah, so at one point, my boss came to me and said, let's try to clone interferon, which was very challenging because globin mRNA had just been cloned and interferon was very, uh, like the holy grail of cloning. So that required collaborators because we didn't know how to score interferon, how to make interferon. So we set up a collaboration with the University of Leuven and one of them, Pasteur Institute in Brussels. And so I did the work in both institutes as well as in the lab in Ghent where I was. And that required me going by train to Leuven to scrape cells, going to Brussels. And every time I had to do a flask with me to bring the samples home, which means the lab in Ghent. It also required the availability of enzymes. So that, requi- that required us because none of the enzymes were commercially available. So that required us to exchange enzymes with other labs. That also required us, to, in order to exchange enzymes, we had to make some of them, make them available. And so one story goes that uh, one of my colleagues had to collect placentas, uh, cow placentas in the slaughterhouse, and several kilograms and purify terminal transferase from this. And that's how the business was. You collaborate, nothing is commercially available, and you make your enzymes for exchange for other enzymes. I mean, obviously, that's so different from what most of us experience today in in the field of molecular biology. Back then, you know, you think about your experiences back then, how did you think differently about science? How, how did you overcome challenges? And how did you think about breakthroughs back then when you didn't have the kind of technology available to you today? So uh, that's a broad question. And so I've always been interested in challenges. So my family was very good at languages. I studied languages and then I was attracted to biology. So I totally switched directions. Being attracted to something I didn't know anything about, I think characterizes my my career. That's what I've done uh, all along. So the challenge, I'm interested interested in the unknown. I'm attracted to the unknown. And that unknown, frankly, like the interferon cloning, required new methodology development. So not only did you use existing methodologies, but very often you had to develop or adapt methodologies. And that was a major challenge. And frankly, once there was no need anymore to develop methodologies, I think a lot of the attraction of the unknown uh, went down. And and how did you even go about doing that? Like, if you don't, if you, there's something you want to be able to do in the lab and there's no established protocol or way to do it, how do you solve that problem? Well, as an example, um, at one point I had to make a small column chromatography, uh, a small column for chromatography to retain DNA. I had read that somebody had developed a paper and then could couple DNA to that paper. So what I did is I took 
cellulose and copied DNA using the same method uh, to, to uh, DNA to that cellulose so they could do chromatography. So it's always the same thing. How do you develop something new? You read up, you take some old things and bring them together and modify. So obviously things were very different back then in how you think about problem solving. But do you think there are still things today that are characteristics of how you approach a problem and successfully solve it? So clearly, I mean, being attracted to unknown marks my career, new, uh, new developments of new, uh, new methods marks my career. And so um, I think a major issue is to not be afraid of the unknown. The major thing is also to believe what you see. And so and, and sometimes you have to take a leap of faith and be ready for failure. So how about start at Genentech? So you came to Genentech in 1981, something like that. Yeah, so, so just to give an illustration of being attracted to the unknown, uh, when I arrived at Genentech in 1980, then I first worked a little bit on interferon gamma, started the TNF project. But then after a while, I was attracted to this activity called transforming growth factor, which was found in the medium of cancer cells. And when you put it on normal cells, they became cancer cells. They look at these things. When you took it away, they became normal cells, which was totally against the thinking of the oncogene and the proto-oncogene hypothesis, which is cell intrinsic changes in, in genes. So I thought, well, if this is real, that's kind of cool. Nobody has, is working on it. I'll start on this. But then when a, a head of research arrived at Genentech, he asked me what I was doing. And I told him that story about cells transforming, becoming back to normal. He started laughing really loud asked all my colleagues to, to join the conversation and, uh, and said, hey, isn't this funny that he's pursuing, he's wasting his career. And then uh, everybody had to laugh, ha, ha, ha. And of course, I felt really, really totally embarrassed because after all, I was a young scientist, insecure. But I think what it really comes down to is, and of course, I pursued what I wanted to pursue. So what it comes down to is being attracted to the unknown, be ready for failure, and uh, be fearless about pursuing what you believe in. And if I would have listened to him, I would not have pursued TGF, which turned out to be TGF alpha and TGF beta, which I both cloned. And so as a result of that, I'm seen like a grandpa of the TGF beta uh, field. So that obviously took a lot of courage for you. And it, it led to, I think, what was... In really incredible success for the kinds of things that you were able to do. You had a chance, I think, to clone many of the important factors that are that we still consider central to immunology today, interferon, TNF, TGF. Do you consider yourself an immunologist? No, absolutely not. I, at one point, I went to a meeting, was in Washington, D.C., I think, to learn immunology because some of these factors became relevant for immune cells. So I said, okay, it was a Genentech. I'll go to this meeting in Washington, D.C. And I was totally turned off because all these people were talking about CD this and CD that. And I didn't understand the word for it. And I thought, this is a universe that's all phenomenology and all the CDs. And I was turned off. I wanted to deal with cells 
that grow on plastic and are important in cancer because transforming growth factor belonged in cancer, and but also in normal cells. And and you've really, um, I think, l- taught us all so much about this TGF beta pathway that mm-hmm. seems to become becoming even more important as we think about cancer immunology and cancer immunotherapy. Um, it's also very complicated biology. Honestly, when I think about TGF beta biology, it makes my brain hurt. How, how do you think about this incredibly complex um, TGF beta system in biology? Yeah, so I, I'm taking a simplistic approach. Um, initially, my start point when there was hardly anything known was, of course, cancer. And I thought it would play a role in cancer. Gradually, I found that it was not really a growth factor because growth factors stimulate cells to proliferate. And it was a really lousy growth factor. So then I thought maybe it's a differentiation factor. And I hated the thought that I would have to get used to differentiation. I never thought about it as an immune factor, uh, although, frankly, I remember a conversation with uh, John Curl at a dinner at Anita Roberts, and John and I were talking about uh, T, uh, TGF beta, and I said, why don't you try it once on, on T cells to see what it does? And this was actually the first paper um, where TGF beta's effect was evaluated in immune cells, and that's a paper with Tony Fauci as last author. So that was the story behind that. And um, gradually the immune people got really excited about it. Uh, Richard Flavel called me and said, Rick, I heard that again, we have a dominant negative receptor that was after the receptor. And so uh, it gradually became into the immune field, but I never seen myself pursuing the immune aspects of TGF-beta. For me, it was a differentiation factor. Uh, for solid cells, and that then, of course, led to the discovery that TGF-beta induces epithelial demosecular transdifferentiation, as I called it, which, again, was something I was totally ridiculed for in public because cells don't differentiate to another phenotype. Epithelial cells don't become mesenchymal cells, and they certainly don't revert back, so it cannot be because uh, differentiation is a commitment. So nevertheless, the paper was ridiculed again, and now it's an entire, uh, very, very big field. So my interest is primarily cell differentiation. And of course, the immunologists, uh, they also study cell differentiation within immune cells. And uh, I'm excited about the fact that so many immunologists are excited about it, but I'm not an immunologist. Well, definitely immunology and oncology as a field and cancer biology have collided in the last 10 years or so. Um, and and TGF-beta does seem to play a really important role in probably at least a third of human cancers. Um, and so we can see that if we're going to really help patients with cancer, we, we have to figure out how to... Um, reverse the immune suppression that we see with TGF-beta. Your thoughts on on how we're going to take this field forward? Yeah, so right now TGF-beta is very big, as you mentioned, because of the area of cancer and uh, cancer immunology. And of course, immuno-oncology is very important uh, because it seems to work, at least in a small percentage of the patients. 
clearly TJ Beda stands in the way. And I think I'm happy to see that after 20 years of hesitation, for which actually the scientists themselves are very responsible for creating confusion, but that after all this time, we have some serious efforts going on in many, many companies and uh, academia uh, on how to repress TGF beta signaling. Uh, clearly, a major challenge right now will be how can we do that in the cancer without touching too much of the normal functions of TGF beta? And that's, I think, a fair question that is there for many biological molecules. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Good luck to you and others working in this field. I think that we all want to see advances around this biology. All right, thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next episode for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.